Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Luke chapter 24, we've got two more messages left in the Gospel of Luke, this one and next week. I don't know about you, but my heart is full. Luke chapter 24. We're going to put our affirmation from the end of Luke's Gospel up on the screen here, and you can say it along with me. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That will hopefully take on even new meaning after we are done with uh, today's message. I don't know if you ever heard of the name of Sarah Tucholsky. I'm not even sure I'm saying that right. She was a softball player at Western Oregon University, and she had never before hit a home run. But with two runners on and a strike against her, she did just that. She uncorked a shot that cleared the fence against Central Washington University. It was a 2008 playoff game. But as she ran, she'd never hit a home run before. She was so excited that as she ran, she actually uh, realized that she'd missed first base. And so she planted her leg in an awkward way to go back and touch first base. And her leg collapsed, and she collapsed with a knee injury there. Now, I don't know if the rules of softball have changed, but at least up till that time, if her teammates helped her around the bases, the home run would be called off. If a pinch runner came in, it would just be a single, and the game would continue on from there instead of a walk-off game-winning home run. Well, Central Washington had a first base woman named Mallory Holtman, and she herself knew about hitting home runs. She was the career home run hitter, not just for her school, but also the great Northwest Atlantic Conference. And she saw this other girl on the other team hit this, what would have been a walk-off game-winning home run, and she just couldn't stand that this girl wouldn't have her moment. And so she quickly ran over to the referee, the umpire, and she said, hey, uh, can I help her around the bases? Can, can, I, can I help her achieve this feat? And the umpire said, well, there's nothing in the rule book about it, so I reckon it'd be okay. And so she recruited a teammate, and together they held up Sarah Tucholsky there and helped her to touch each bag with her good leg, rendering the home run good and allowing Western Oregon to advance in the playoffs. Well, after the game, Mallory was asked about that, and she said, in the end, it's not about winning and losing so much. It was about this girl. She hit it over the fence and was in pain and she deserved her home run. Isn't that great? I thought about that true story when I was getting ready for today's message. Because last week we read of Jesus meeting two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, It was Cleophas and perhaps his wife, perhaps a traveling companion. There were two of them. Cleophas is the one that's named. And this week we're going to read of 
Jesus meeting with the disciples at a house in Jerusalem. So two in Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, and then in Emmaus, and then the others back in Jerusalem. And what's so amazing about that to me is that Jesus had actually told them that after he died and rose again, they were to meet him in Galilee, back where he'd done so much wonderful ministry. Look at what Matthew 26, 32 says. He says, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And then this from Mark, and it's also in Matthew's Gospels, Mark 16, 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, the one that doesn't feel like a disciple right now, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So he told them to go to Galilee, the angel told them to go to Galilee, and they did not. As we're going to read about next Sunday, Jesus' ascension back to heaven uh, 40 days later actually came from Olive Mountain near Jerusalem, or the Mount of Olives, Olive Mountain. And, uh, but Galilee was where he more fully restored Peter, and it was also where he gave his great commission to all of us to go and make disciples of all ethnos, all nations, all ethnicities in the world, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when a person believes in Christ, they get baptized in the name of the triune God. We go on to teach them all that the Scriptures would have us teach them. We pour into them. And Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, the Matthew 28 Great Commission. But Sunday morning came, and and did not find the disciples on the way to Galilee to meet him. That's what they should have been doing. Hey, we're confident in his words, right? He told us he was going to die. He told us he was going to rise the third day. He told us to meet us in Galilee. He'd meet us in Galilee. They should have been on the way there. But they were in Emmaus. They were in Jerusalem. We don't know where Thomas was. They were not on the way to Galilee. So just like Mallory Holtman helped Sarah Tucholsky round the bases and get to home plate, Jesus went back. Those are beautiful words, aren't they? Jesus went back. He didn't go to where they were supposed to meet him. He went back to where they were, the different places they were, whether it was on the road to Emmaus, whether it was there in the house in Jerusalem, or whether it was wherever Thomas was. It took Thomas a whole week later to see the risen Lord. They were supposed to be on the way to Galilee, but as far as we know, not a single one of them was. So what did Jesus do? Did he say, well, boy, they're hard-headed. Boy, they're slow of heart. I'm just going to ascend on to heaven and be with the Father. This lot's not worth it. Is that what he did? No, no. He went to where they were to take them to where he wanted them to be. After his resurrection, we saw it last week, Jesus began to gather his disciples where they were to take them to where they were supposed to be. And the good news is he still does the same thing today. You know, did you remember the question that was asked in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve had sinned. God came for his regular walk with them. And he said, where are you? He initiated the relationship. He knew where they were. He knew they were full of guilt and shame over their sin. He knew they couldn't process all that had happened to them and they were without hope, so he went to where they were. God always does that. And that's what Jesus was doing there on that Resurrection Sunday. He was going to where they were so he could take them to where he wants one of them to be. And he does the same thing for us. Where are you? Where are you? Uh, where are you at spiritually? Where are you at in your walk with the Lord? 
Uh, one of my great concerns after this year that we've had is how many sheep will have done sheep-like things and be, have wandered away, be caught in brambles of this sin or that sin, uh, have scars from the year, uh, and, uh, and never turn back to the Lord, never turn back to the church. And we get to join Jesus in going out to where people are, right? And being like the great shepherd who loves his sheep and cares for his sheep and goes after his sheep where they are. They should have been on the way to Galilee. Instead, he's got to go several places and bring them back together. Thank God Jesus comes to where we are so we can go where he is. Luke chapter 24, going to read verse 30. That overlaps a little bit with last week down through verse 43. So Cleophas and his companion had Jesus in their home. They had insisted on him staying and feeding them. It's in Emmaus. And verse 30 says, It came to pass as Jesus sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. Wouldn't that be cool to do? Be able to go from one place to another just like that. Well, maybe our resurrection body will be able to do that as well. Verse 32. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Verse 36, now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, isn't that great? And said to them, peace to you, shalom to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. The scars were still there from the crucifixion. But while they still did not believe for joy, that's a hard thing to process the way that's worded, isn't it? It's so awkward. They, they, it's too good to be true, or is it? He's really right here before us. And, and it's just they're processing all this in live time, and awkward words come out like there in verse 41. They marveled. He said to them, have you any food here? <laughs> Got anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Jesus meets us where we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time of worship we've had already, for the joy it is to be gathered in your name, to look into your word as saints are doing around the world and have done for 2,000 years gathering every Sunday, the day you rose from the dead, celebrating the implications of the resurrected Lord in each of our lives and how by faith we get in on resurrection power. We get in on having the Holy Spirit of God indwell us and we have a reserved place in heaven. We have all our sins forgiven, Lord. And even though the old sin nature remains with us until we die and so life is a constant battle, we thank you the war has been won by what you did on the cross, by you rising from the dead, by you seated in heaven, by you interceding for us, and by one day the sure knowledge that you're going to come back. First to rapture your church, later to reign on earth. Oh God, we're so thankful for your perfect plan unfolding before us. It's difficult days, Lord. We're tired, we're weary. Many are 
as beaten up and bruised as a sheep can be after a year of a lack of consistent fellowship. We look around at even preachers falling, evangelists falling, and we are torn up inside. We understand that in our flesh dwells no good thing, that our hearts are desperately wicked, and that if we make anything about us, we too will fall. We thank you for the restorative power of the gospel, not only to initially bring us to Christ, Lord, but also to give us times of revival along the way. And for everyone in the sound of my voice that, within the sound of my voice that desperately needs personal revival and renewal right now, may that come this springtime. As hearts open up to the sun above, may our hearts open up to you and receive the glorious light of the Son of God who has a perfect plan for each of our lives as individuals and a perfect plan for this church here. Lord, we trust you to build your church in these days to come. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Again, last week we went down through verse 32. We saw how Jesus met Cleopas there and another disciple on the road to Emmaus, how he explained the Old Testament prophecies to them. They brought him into their lodging at Emmaus. They had dinner with him, and that's when he revealed himself there, his glorious presence to them there. And we love that verse 32. They explained to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was talking with us on the road? And we think about that because Jesus led with the scriptures, not with the scars, right? We can't show people the actual scars of Jesus. They are physically obscured to us. They're in heaven. He's in heaven. One day he will come back. And yet for 2,000 years, he has been saving people based on what the scriptures teach and the testimony of hearts burning with his love. He puts those together, and with the power of his Holy Spirit, he's been working on people the Spirit has their whole life. He brings them into contact with the Scriptures. He brings them into contact with people who know Christ, and all of a sudden the faith is born in another soul. And a little while later, they get to talk to somebody about their burning hearts, and the faith is born in another soul, and so on and so forth. It's been all the way during these 2,000 years. Now, if you were Cleophas or his wife or Cleophas and his companion, if you were one of those two that had Jesus before you there, what would you have done next? Uh, you would want to share that good news with your fellow disciples, wouldn't you? And, and that's exactly what they did. They, share how they, they wanted to share how they had met with Jesus. So in verses 33 through 35, we see that the first disciples excitedly talked about Jesus when they met. Now remember, it was already late in the day. Uh, the day was far spent, as the uh, Greek reads there. It was far spent. It was a, it was a day that, uh, you know, when they got to Emmaus, it was already getting late. And they didn't say, Cleopas and his friend didn't look to each other and say, you know what, it's been a long day. And that was a great spiritual high we just had with Jesus. That was so awesome. You know, let's go back to Jerusalem tomorrow if we feel like it. You know, I mean, uh, the disciples are there and they're gathering. If we feel like it, let's go back there tomorrow and tell them about seeing Jesus. Is that what they did? No. Even though it was late, they said, we just saw Jesus. We just encountered the very reason for living. We're not sure they know about this back in Jerusalem yet. So it says that they instantly, that moment, they rose up at that very hour. In verse 33, it says, and they returned to Jerusalem, even though it was going to be a seven-mile journey for them. 
And I think it takes about two miles to walk seven, uh, two, minute, uh, two hours to walk seven miles. They had probably, when they were walking with Jesus on the way to Emmaus, probably taken that full two-hour kind of time and stuff. On the way back, I bet they did it a lot faster. They said, we got to get there. We got to share this great news with others. And so they found the 11 and those with them so they could tell them that they had seen Jesus alive. This was information that everyone needed to know. So they found the 11. Now, actually, it was the 10 because Thomas wasn't with them. You know, we call the disciples the 12, right? Well, Judas had betrayed Christ, and so now they're just called the 11. Of the 11, 10 were there. Thomas would be there the next week. And in Acts 1, they actually replaced, so they'd have 12 again uh, for that uh, early set of disciples, those who had witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, but we find out before they could tell them they'd seen Jesus, what did the 11 do? that they met with and the others that were there with them. They wanted them to know that Peter had seen Jesus also. You're telling us you've seen Jesus? Peter was just telling us that he'd seen Jesus. And so they're kind of trying to go first in sharing what Jesus had done in their life and in their presence. My goodness, think about that for a moment. What would our church be like if each time we gathered, if each time we gathered, each person was ready to share something they had learned about Jesus that week. It might be one of those things that would position us for revival. Amen? Here's what he's done in my heart. I was reading this verse. I was reading this Bible chapter. I was reading this Bible book. And oh, here's what he taught me this week. Oh, that's great. Let me share with you what he's taught me this week. Well, I haven't had, you know, it's been a hard week in lots of ways. But even in the midst of getting a bad diagnosis from the doctor and others, I felt Jesus' presence with me. And so even though I was anxious, I, I, I prayed about it. And you know, the doctor prayed with me or the nurse prayed with me. And then I, I had a peace that I wouldn't have had otherwise as I faced that. Whether you've had experientially a good week or a bad week, Jesus has met you in some way during the week. And what if when we came together, we were looking for a chance to share with each other in our Sunday school classes and in the hallways as we're going and coming what Jesus had done. Why don't you make that a goal of yours? To share at least once a week what Jesus is doing in your life, what he's teaching you, uh, what you're learning from him, what he's teaching you from the Bible. I especially like that uh, the youth that are participating in it have this word of life material that actually has them do that regularly with a partner, sharing what they've learned from the scriptures they're going through together. Now, folks, don't miss how much grace there is in verse 34. Let me read you verse 34 again. It says, The Lord is risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. Simon Peter, sometimes also called Cephas. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Who was the first of the eleven disciples that Jesus appeared to? According to that verse, Simon, Simon Peter. Have you ever watched one of those amazing Andy Griffith episodes where Barney Fife has royally blown it in some way? I mean, he just, you know, he, he, he got out there ahead of himself and he has just made a fool of himself, right? Uh, I think about Peter, you know, denying Christ. I'll never deny you, Lord, even if all these other bozos don't, I'll not deny you. And he had. I mean, he had just royally failed. I mean, a mega fail. And sometimes in those Andy Griffith episodes, uh, Barney Fife just has an epic fail, right? And, and then it all comes to light and his confidence is shot. 
I mean, you couldn't get him off the floor with a spatula, you know. You've seen one of those episodes. It's one of the common themes on that show. And then what happens? Good old Andy Griffith comes alongside of him and does something that restores Barney Fife's confidence in how he was seen by the rest of Mayberry. And then all of a sudden, Barney Fife starts doing the thing again. You know, he's ready to go, and he's got his confidence back, right? That's what I thought of when I meditated on verse 34. Jesus first appeared to Simon Peter in Jerusalem to let him know he wasn't done with him yet, personally, before he appears to the other 11 disciples. Now, in John 21, there's a more formal restoration of Peter by the Sea of Galilee, where they were supposed to all be at anyway. And it is really neat how he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And each time Jesus says, well, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep, right? Our love for the Lord will overflow into caring for our fellow Christians. But this moment was just enough encouragement to have Simon Peter return to the other apostles and excitedly say, he's alive! I've seen Jesus! And, and he appeared to me even though I thought he'd be done with me after I denied him so horribly before others. I thought I was in the Judas category, but the Lord has personally appeared to me. Fellas, he's alive! It was probably the first time his head had been up in 72 hours. I love Psalm 3, 3, that says the Lord is the one who lifts our heads. Have you ever been so distraught, discouraged, depressed that you can't lift your head at either the mistakes you've made, the sins that have been in your life, the, just the, the, the crushing sense of futility about your life and whether you're making a difference in the world? I love Psalm 3, 3, where David says, who had experienced moments like that, he says, you are my shield, you're the one who lifts my head. I had about an 18-month time in my own life one time where my head was down that long. And uh, I remember seeing that verse and how the Lord's the one that lifts our head. Well, he lifted old Peter's head back. And can't you see him there in the other room? There's the other disciples, John and James, Gomer and Goober, Thelma Lou, And they're just all eating it up. Peter was being restored as a leader of God's people. And it was a glorious thing. He shared his experience. Then Cleopas came and he shared his experience. They were having church that first Lord's Day. And everyone was being encouraged in their faith, even though they couldn't understand it all. But do you know what? Something else was happening. Did you know that when believers share what God's doing in their life, heaven is listening in? Did you know that? Okay, so this is Luke's gospel that you got Mark before it, you got Matthew before that, and then you got the Old Testament before that. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. So turn to Malachi now, just a few books back to your left there. So turn back to Malachi, the next to last chapter of the Old Testament, chapter 3. And you may have never heard these verses before, but I venture to say over 90% of the people in this room and watching online will never forget these verses after we read them. Malachi chapter 3, 16, that's one way to remember it, John 3, 16, Malachi 3, 16. Malachi 3, 16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels." 
and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Woo, there's a lot of great stuff in that verse, isn't there? Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. I've told you I'm on a kind of kick to make the days come back where it's interchangeable to say, there goes a person that loves Jesus, and there goes a person who fears the Lord. A person who fears the Lord knows that he's God and we're not. They have an awe of him, a respect for him, a reverence for him. They know that any human alive deserves judgment, but thanks to what Jesus has done, if you turn to him, you look into your judge's eyes and you see a Savior there. So they love Jesus, and he invites them to in closer to friendship and to fellowship and family status, right? He's constantly inviting closer. Those who loved the Lord, those who feared the Lord, spoke to one another. And what happened in heaven? It says the Lord listened and he heard. They were talking about their love for the Lord and what he was doing in their lives. And heaven was listening. And then he told some angels to write down what he was hearing. So I presume that in heaven there are books of remembrance, that angels are recording things the saints are thinking and saying and doing on earth that God can reward. I believe that when we get to heaven, maybe Bob Vermillion's there right now, I don't know, I believe you can go to a library in heaven and look at the books of the deeds of the saints that loved the Lord. I believe this is an ongoing thing that's there. And what's in there? Hebrews 11 type things. You know, the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 11 says, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Sarah did that. By faith, Rahab. By faith, David, etc. And it's so neat how all that unfolds. I believe it's still going on and on. I think by faith, that Gideon, Matt Wofford, showed up and handed out a New Testament and shared the gospel. By faith, Aaron Haley used his musical gifts to serve the Lord. By faith, Vicki Height took up her pen and encouraged people and picked up the phone and called them to see how they're doing, to let them know they matter to her and matter to Jesus. By faith, Dorothy Carter got ready to do some more Awana ministry. And it is so beautiful when you think about what the saints do by faith and that heaven's listening in. But how cool is it to see that the Lord of hosts says of people of faith, they are mine, they are my jewels. Why, why does anybody here that wears jewelry wear it? it? It adorns you, doesn't it, right? It makes you look better, but it's also beautiful in itself. And, and Jesus says, that's what my saints are like to me. They're my jewels. They make what I do in people's life shine. And it's so wonderful to see this beautiful passage here. And I see the difference between those who serve me and those who don't. I think it's still happening in heaven today. Now, I don't know where Jesus was in the spiritual realm while they were talking, right? We know from the earlier verses he was able to appear and disappear in this resurrected body. It was an actual body. It's more like what our resurrection bodies will be like. It's so cool to think about. Uh, I, I don't know where he was when Cleopas was sharing and when Peter was sharing and everyone was rejoicing. But I don't know where he was in that moment, but I know what he did next. <laughs> Jesus personally attended that first Lord's Day service. This is a Sunday, and they are praising the Lord, verses 36 through 43. As they said these things, it says, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. 
And I believe Jesus was enjoying every minute of this. I think he loved these 40 days. The work of the cross was done. He'd been resurrected. He's going back to heaven. He's pouring his love. He's pouring into them, leaving us a model to enjoy each other, to pour into the moments God gives us together. Uh, And uh, John 20, verse 19, lets us know that Jesus came through their locked door. That's one of the reasons they were afraid. Didn't we lock the door, double-bolt it, because those Roman soldiers are out there and those Jewish authorities are out there that don't like what we've done, and Jesus is just right there in the midst of them, right? Well, that would make you think he's a ghost because that had happened. Um, He says, peace to you, and they were terrified and frightened. They supposed they had seen a ghost, and Jesus put them at ease. He put them at ease and said, why are you troubled? Why do you have doubts in your heart? I love the times Jesus comes to his disciples and says, let not your heart be troubled. He did it in John 14 when he said he was going to heaven, right? To prepare a place for them. Here he says, let not your heart be troubled. Why do you have doubts in your heart? Look, look at my hands, look at my feet, look at them, it's me. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. But while they still did not believe for joy, the text reads, and marveled, he said to them, hey, you got anything to eat? (laughs) They still could hardly believe it was true. Dead people don't come back to life, but you know what dead people also don't do? They don't ask you to feed them, right? There's lots of food around a funeral back at the house, right, to eat, but the dead person isn't usually the one asking for a sandwich. He said, hey, you got anything around here to eat? How fun is that? Jesus had the late night munchies. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. And of course, it's fun to read these details. But the larger point the scriptures are making is, you know, there are about 10 objections people have given to the resurrection of Christ over the years. And the answers for every objection is also already in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's already been put in there, right? And so here's one. He's not a ghost because ghosts can't be handled and touched and ghosts can't eat a burger with you, you know, and those things. A fish sandwich, we should be more specific there. All this because Jesus was meeting them where they were in order to take them to where he wants them to be. And he does the same for us. Earlier we sang uh, uh, the song, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds in a Believer's Ear. It was written by John Newton, the great author of Amazing Grace. Early this week, I stumbled across a quote from John Newton. It's so great to read the classic authors and things. They give us such a depth of experience. I like some current things too, but it's so great to get back and read some of those old dead guys who, even though they're dead, yet speak. And John Newton essentially called the church a theater of grace. He called the gathering of believers together a theater where God's grace is on display. Oh, we got plenty of the old nature sins to deal with as when individuals gather, but we also see and say, look at how God's changed Danny Campbell. Look at what God's doing in Margaret Elliott. Look at that family persevering there and that lady after all she's been through. Listen to this John Newton quote, God who is rich in mercy appointed a people to himself out of the fallen race for their sakes, and as a theater whereon to display the wonders of his providence and grace. Providence is a big word just to mean God cares for you and is working all things in your life toward the pursuit of glorifying him, doing good for your fellow man, getting the gospel to non-believers, getting, helping your fellow believers grow, and also you can live with a grateful heart. 
all those things God is doing through his providential care for you and, of course, his amazing grace. Despite all of our imperfections as sinful wretches, every Sunday we gather in this theater of grace and we sing about the amazing grace that can save any wretch who turns to Jesus. If you'll provide the wretch, he'll provide the Savior. You know, the early disciples also sang. Many scholars, even liberal scholars, believe that 1 Corinthians 15 has a hymn that goes back to within two or three years after Christ's resurrection. And here it is, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried. And He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Most people believe Paul, in that point, is quoting from a hymn that had been sung. He's writing in the early 60s. Uh, most people believe he's... Uh, going from a hymn that's from about 33 A.D., just a couple years after Christ. In fact, listen to how uh, Gerd Ludemann, that's a skeptic scholar, he ain't one of us, but he maintains that the elements of the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, not later than three years. Another guy, Michael Goulder, Goulder, he's a skeptic scholar, not one of us, he said, it goes back at least to what Paul was taught when he was converted a couple of years after the crucifixion. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried, he rose the third day, and then he started appearing to people, to Cephas, to the twelve, to over 500 gathered at once. And Paul goes on to share his personal testimony of how Christ had now appeared to him as well and what he was doing. Now, as we come down the home stretch here, you may say, Danny... These words have stirred me, but I still can't understand why Jesus had to die. You know, those church leaders that, I hate to even call it church, because I'm talking about the church leaders that for well over 200 years now have denied the Scriptures and denied the deity of Jesus Christ, that He's God. They've denied aspects of the Trinity. They've denied salvation is in His name. They completely reject any saving meaning to Christ dying on the cross. For them, Christ is only an example to follow. What he did on the cross represents the kind of sacrificial love we should have for others. And so we still get moved by it, but he wasn't doing something for us that we can't do for ourselves. After all, these people would say, we're, we believe in evolution, that we've evolved, that we're getting better. So we really have to reject the idea that people are created and then fallen and need a redeemer. And yet all around us, the effects of people making sinful choices based on having a sin nature are all around us, reinforcing that God has indeed created every person who's ever lived. They have fallen because of sin and their own sinful choices. They've got a sin nature. They've made their own sinful choices. And they desperately need salvation from outside themselves. And that's what Jesus came to provide. Danny, why did he, Jesus have to die? Well, Let's look at it this way. We've looked at it different ways over the years. Jesus had to die because of four things that God cannot do. We like to speak about how God can do anything, and in a very real sense, he can. But because of his character, there's four things he cannot do. The first one is God cannot lie. He is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He cannot lie. His word, the Holy Bible, tells us the truth about ourselves, created in his image, but fallen into sin because of Adam and Eve's sin. We're sinners by nature, we're sinners by choice. 
Most people think that they're okay without God, and others tell them they're a good person. But no one is good but God alone. The truth is that if you don't know Jesus, you're a sinner on the way to hell unless you turn to Jesus. God cannot lie. He has to tell us the truth. The second thing God cannot do, God cannot sin. God cannot sin. That would act against His glory. God must act in concert with His glory. He does it 100% of the time. So not only is He truth, but He also is a glorious God, a holy God, and everything He has to do has to be the right thing to do. Sin is not doing the right thing. As the designer, God knows how He's designed things to be done. Not doing things how He's designed to be done are sins against God the designer, God the creator, right? And so... And each of those sins has built-in consequences that will be experienced. So you tell a lie, that's a sin. People cannot trust you, that's a consequence. Everything the Bible calls sin has built-in consequences. And you can just think, sometimes just think about sin. Did pastor say that? Think about sin and how there's a built-in consequence to any sin that you can think of, and that is true. You, can't put, you don't put sugar in a gas tank and expect to get anywhere. The owner's manual tells you what to put in there. You've got to put what God says in to get what God wants out, how, things that can glorify Him. So God must take an oppositional posture against all that violates His glory, including the sinful decisions of humans. There's an incredible little verse. It's one of the oldest psalms there is. It's Psalm 90. And it's one of the very oldest of the Psalms, going all the way back to one of the early men of God. And it says, For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. One translation reads, Your wrath will match the glory due your name. So each of us has a glory deficit between us and God. There's the glory He can expect to get from our lives as our Creator. There's the sinful choices we've made that have not brought Him glory. And the difference is how bad judgment will be for every human on earth unless they turn to Christ for salvation. We'll explain that in a minute. Every sin adds to the glory deficit that exists between us and God. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. The third thing God cannot do, God cannot let sin go unpunished. Why? Because He's holy and just. He cannot excuse sin. God has to judge sin. There's no doubt about it. He has to do it. You say, well, why doesn't he just overlook sin against him? Well, because he's holy and just. That's why. It means he must judge sin. Think about it. If you were in a court of law and the person that was there owed you, the one that was on trial, owed you $1 million, you would not appreciate it if the judge came in and said, I'm feeling merciful today. So even though this guy owes that guy a million dollars, I'm just going to let him off. What would you say? That ain't right. That's not justice. That's not fair. I'm out a million dollars. How can you let him off without without this debt being paid? The Bible says that Satan is constantly accusing me and you and this world before God and say, if you just let that person off, then you're not, no longer just. Yeah, you might be merciful, but some kind of twisted, unjust mercy. So the balances have to be paid in eternity's courts. 
If God expressed mercy toward us without a reason to, he would no longer be just. That leads us to the fourth thing God cannot do. God cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot let sin go unpunished. But praise God, the fourth thing is God cannot stop loving people. He cannot stop loving his creation. And so the rescue mission of Jesus was undertaken. Oh, it's so wonderful, culminating with his death and resurrection, all because of John 3.16, love for the world. Now, remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The next verse says, John 3.17, for he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So it's really not a matter of God letting anybody go to hell. Because of our sin, we're on the way to hell, right? God created hell for the devil and his angels. That's in Matthew 25. But where else is he going to put rebels against him? A soul once created is going to go on forever. And for those that defy him, where else would their wrath against God, their fighting against God wind up except in hell, right? But God cannot stop loving us. So John 3, 16, he loves us, and he embarked on the ultimate rescue mission. We love to hear of rescue missions, don't we? Where somebody goes out into the ocean and rescues somebody that's drowning, or somebody's down in a well or something, and a rescuer pulls them out. Somebody's stuck in the mountains, and a rescuer goes to them. Those are are small in comparison to what Jesus has done for this world. Leaving heaven's comforts, coming to earth living the perfect life we all fall short of, that made him able to be a savior for us. His love made him willing to be a savior for us. And in the fullness of time, he went to that cross. And the, just like the Old Testament sacrifices, when a sinner could come and the sin would be transferred from them to the sacrifice, it was so costly, the sacrifice would die. That's what Jesus was doing for us. Uh, in the Old Testament days, it was temporary. There still had to be the final payment that Jesus would make. But let's say that he allowed one man to die for another and that to count so that uh, I could go, uh, I could bear JJ's sin and he would get to go to heaven and I'd go to hell on his behalf. If I was a perfect man, I could offer that to JJ, but I couldn't offer it to JJ and Darby. Uh, You know, it'd just be me, JJ, or Darby. But if God would come to earth and offer that sacrifice, he could apply that substitute to anyone he wanted to and still be just and still be loving because the penalty has been paid at the most expensive price, the price of God the Son doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Everyone here needs to know this passage because it explains theologically the significance of the death of Christ and what God is doing for sinners in that. Romans 3.23. Some of you have been part of evangelistic programs and you memorize Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But when you go on down to verse 26, you get a whole argument there made that's not terribly difficult to understand. You just need to take the time to do it, and then you can share it with others the rest of your days. Now look for the key words that twice it talks about how God is demonstrating something by what he does on the cross. Romans 3, 23 through 26, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a substitute sacrifice by His blood, through faith, 
to demonstrate his righteousness because in his patience, his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed in Old Testament days. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, and then here's the key, I put it in bold for you, I put it in caps for you, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why is he just? He's just because the sin really has been dealt with. It is finished. The penalty really was paid. He's the justifier of those who come to faith. In other words, on the cross, God is able to demonstrate his justice toward the wickedness of sin, and he's able to demonstrate his love toward humanity, and all who receive his offer of salvation have the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's what's being demonstrated. Christ's perfect righteousness will count as their very own on judgment day. You know, Back in the uh, 400s, Jerome, a man named Jerome, not one of the Jacksons, Jerome was in uh, uh, Europe, and he translated the Bible into Latin. And it was very useful for the body of Christ. But there was one problem. The word in Latin where Jesus says, repent, repent and believe, repent and believe, right? The word repent, he translated in such a way that it was do penance and believe. And so the Roman Catholic Church insisted that meant that we had to add something to what Jesus did. We believe and do good works. In the year 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the door of the church in Wittenberg, and he was getting us back to what the word repent really meant. The year before that, a man named Erasmus had put together the Greek New Testament, and Martin Luther saw it's not penance that we do, it's repentance that we're to be about. And the word repent means to change your mind. To change your mind about your ability to measure up in God's sight. You can't. To change your mind about there being many ways to heaven, there's only one way, Jesus. To change your mind uh, about anything except receiving this gift of salvation, receiving it as a gift. And that changed everything. People that had tried so hard in their own strength to make God okay with them realized they were okay with God by faith because of what Jesus had done for them. And people were born again as they heard that message, and they still are today. Every sin will get dealt with one of two places. On the cross for those who will let Jesus be their substitute, or at the great white throne judgment and then the lake of fire for those who continue to defy God. That's why it's so important. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, his blood is sufficient to save everyone who's ever lived. But it's efficient to save only those who gladly receive the offer of salvation and give their heart to Jesus to follow him. Everybody ought to know John 3.36. Let me put it up for you. He who believes in the Son has life, everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God abides on him. God cannot stop loving you, and that's why the cross, that's why the resurrection, that's why preachers stand and give you the opportunity every chance they get to say, if you'll provide the wretch, you'll receive him God's amazing grace. You provide the sinner, he'll be your Savior. Come to Jesus. Let him deal with your sin problem. If you are a Christian living in sin, come back to Jesus. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let him meet you where you are and take you where he wants you to be day by day, week by week, month by month. 
I got saved December 16th, 1984, and sometimes I look in the mirror and say, what a wretch. You know, I'm not everything I want to be yet, but thank God I'm not what I was. I'm a work in progress, and so are you. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The works don't save us, but they do come after our faith. They show we have the faith, right? As we're doing things that please him and that he can reward. Uh, So faith alone saves and then faith gets to work for Jesus. And let's bow our heads now. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.